Um, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 18. I wanted to give a scripture. Um, it was just on my heart dur- during the middle whenever Benji was, was singing, and it's um, Micah 7, verse 8. And he says this, Rejoice not over me, my enemy. Get this, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Notice, it's, it's when, not, not if. And so part of my prayer this morning, uh, I've just titled the, the sermon, The Hope of Lament. It's a, it, it's a paradox. But the hope of lament, it's this idea that, that in Christianity, and it's incredibly unique in Christianity, um, that, that, that God not only says that our praise is worship, but he says our lament is worship also. And so here's one of my fears. Here's one of my fears in the church. Is that we can become a church so much, and I'm speaking worldwide church, that the only flavor of words that come off of us are the raising of hands and praise and praise and praise. And that's great and that's good. And so I want us to hold us in there. We want to have that, but I want to expand it. I want to expand it. Because Christianity gives us this reality of being able to lament to God. So here's what we're going to do, is we're going to read through Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8. I want to kind of give us a, a quick overview um, of, of what's going on here. Then, um, what, is, what is lament? Right? What does that even mean? Especially from a Christian perspective, what is, what is lament? Um, then some scriptures that support that, because honestly, it really doesn't matter what I think if it's not rooted in the scriptures. And then some reasons, maybe why we don't lament, and then some reasons that we should. So if you didn't get all that, don't worry. We're going to go through it. So um, there we go. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And get that. So, 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 always pray and not lose heart. I used to always read the not lose heart as in um, this idea of, okay, what can I do to conjure this up, right? I don't want to lose heart. I don't want to lose heart. I don't want to lose heart. What can I do? And if we, whenever we read on in the parable, that's not the type of losing heart that he's talking about. He's talking about pray to God and don't lose heart because he's really that good. Entrust yourself. Don't lose heart just because he can hold you. So he, he said, verse 2, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect 
who cry to him night and day? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Get this, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So quick overview. He's sitting here, verse 1, saying, we need to always pray and we need to not lose heart. But here's the, 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 where I want us to hone in is the words of the widow here. The words of the widow here in, in, in verse 3. She says here, give me justice against my adversary. Everything is not all right with the widow. There's something incredibly wrong. She goes, she complains. It's a lament. It's a lament. Verse 4 and 5, get this, from, from, we learn this, that the absence of an answer, get this, led to perseverance, not silent resignation. Get that. The, the absence of the answer led to, okay, it, it, it must mean that I need to persevere more. Do you, do you hear the hope there? I need to persevere more. I, I, I don't need to just give up and just, just go, hey, whatever God wills, whatever God wills. Now, whatever God wills will take part of this lament. We better believe it. But that whatever God wills is a very active pushing in. So that's verse four and five. And then verses six through eight, it says that God says that he's different than this unrighteous judge. Why? Because He's not bothered, that's why. He's not bothered by us perpetually coming to him. He loves it. He loves it. And yet, he asks this question, and this is what I want to pose at the very end of what we're talking about. And you're, you're probably like, so why are you talking about it now? Um, well, we'll just remind. Um, the, he says, is he going to find this type of faith? This type. And, and notice, notice the anatomy of it. Is he going to find that lamenting type of faith? It's not just persevering faith. It's not just a let's get our arms up in the air and let's be all strong all the time and things like that. Although we will have that. So, so hear that. But the reality that he's sitting there saying is going, am I going to see this kind of faith? Am I going to see it when I come again? And my fear is that for the most part in the worldwide church, we don't see it. We don't see that. And what we normally echo to in order to get more faith is how can we be more strong, right? How do we fight against this? It's going to be part of it. It's just not the whole picture is my point. And you and I both know that. You and I both know that. It's why that theology that continually speaks that everything's good, everything's great. If there's something wrong in your life, obviously you've done something wrong. Or if there's something wrong in your life, just say this, just give this much, just do this and do this and do this. And then everything will be all right. You and I both know that it is a bunch of junk in the most literal sense. Why? Because that's an Eastern mystic view. That's what it is. It's okay, I just need to pay my penance to God. Sometime he, somehow he's going to be pleased. He can't be bothered with my complaints. I just need to praise him into activation. Have you ever heard people talk, like, like, like let, let's activate God into action with our praise. It's, it's really shallow. Here's an example. Imagine if my wife, I came up to my wife, 
and I start praising her, start encouraging her, encouraging. And some of you wives are like, yeah, I know where this is going. Um, I start encouraging her, I start encouraging her, I start encouraging her, and she doesn't do what, what I would like her to do, so I encourage her a little bit more and encourage her a little bit more and stuff, and, and, and I, I, I'm attempting to activate her to do something because I'm praising her. What is she going to rightly look at me and say? Don't use me. Don't use me. Don't do that. You don't need to activate me. We're in relationship. We're in, it's true relationship. And that's the thing about Christianity that I think that is missed many times. It is about relationship. First and foremost with God, then with yourself, then with others, love your neighbor as yourself. And then non-human creation, of course, because God is redeeming everything. He is in the redemption process. And so it is about relationship. That's what Christianity is about. And so in that, he invites us to this rich, rich relationship. That as this one guy, Glenn Pemberton, said, he said, um, Thanksgiving and lament are two sides of the same coin. Thanksgiving and lament are two sides of the same coin. You can't have Thanksgiving without lament, and you can't have lament without Thanksgiving. That's what the Bible teaches. It's pretty profound. So what is lament? Simply put, lament is this, and you'll find it up there. It's complaint that finds its trust in God. That's what it is. Lament is complaint that finds its trust in God. And we need to make sure that it's not just complaint. It's not just a railing on God and then flying the coop. It's not just a, I'm going to tell you what I think, how I think, when I think, and then I'm just going to leave. No, no, no. That's not what we're given. It's saying, he's big enough for complaint, but also we need to be big enough to sit there and let him speak into that. He needs to be able to heal the complaint. Maybe he needs to change our mind about what we're complaining about. Nonetheless, he wants to hear the complaint. So there's, there's scripturally, you, you, in an attempt to kind of put a little bit of a, an anatomy on, on complaint, um, it's, it, it's pretty much like this. You have, you have the violation, whatever happened, whatever went wrong, whether it's an abuse, whether it's the silence of God, whether it's just a heaviness. And there needs to be this vocalization because that's how he's meant for, uh, it's how he created us. That we need to vocalize these things. And he, here's one of the things that, like Ron, Ron hit on this during the uh, men's retreat, and I thought it was brilliant, is just bringing this point of just this whole idea of don't quit. Don't keep looking. Don't keep trying to relive your past. And don't keep always trying to go back and go back and go back and only talking about junk in your life, basically. And here, here's what I think. Is that if we only complain to other people, we will continually live in that cycle. Have you ever known those people? All they do is talk about junk in their life. I mean, they wear you out. They do. And they were meant to wear you out. And they were meant to be worn out. It's what it is. 
Why? Because we were meant for praise in God, ultimately for eternity. But the reality is, is that we sit here and we complain to other people all the time and we don't even give God an audience to it. So maybe we need to start there with the audience. Maybe we need to complain with God. And then let him speak some things to us. Now, I'm not sitting here saying don't have community, don't be honest, and things like that with each other. But if you find yourself complaining more to others than you do God, you're on the wrong path. That's all I'm saying. So with that, don't give up. Do not give up. Let him speak victory into your life. So so we sit here and we have this, this issue, whatever it is that's going on, and there needs to be a vocalization or a violation or from the violation, then you need to have the vocalization. You need to speak it out. And from that comes victory. So we have violation, we have vocalization, we have victory. But here's, here's the thing. Sometimes the victory looks like a cross. We got to get that. Sometimes the victory looks like a cross. The victory is not always clean, chest puffed out. Everything is good to go. One day it will be. Oh, we better believe it. One day it will be. But the victory is relationship. It's relationship with God. So, though he slay me, yet I will rejoice. We can sit here and we can be a people that, sit, that go, I can vocalize the deepest pains in my life to God and complain about something and he can answer with relationship with me and that's the victory. Maybe the circumstance doesn't even actually change externally. We have to be honest with that. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does. But the win is your relationship with God. So here's one of the things that, that, that we're taught in verse 1. He told them a, a parable effect that ought always to pray and not lose heart. So here's the thing, the thing that this teaches us. Heartless prayers, get that, heartless prayers are those that, one, do not persevere. So we get that. But here's the other aspect. Heartless prayers are prayers that only praise. It, it's true. It's, it, as crazy as that sounds... It's true. One of my friends that's a New Testament theologian, he said this. He, it was a really provocative statement, but he said this. If we only praise God, we make it seem like he has a fragile ego. I was like, did you really say that, man? And, and he did, because I just said it to you. Um, but if we only praise God, we make it seem like he has a fragile ego. He's got the ego of the Eastern mystics. He can only be praised. Don't dare complain to him. But that's not the God that we serve. So, so, so where are some scriptural basis for this? I want to give us, so to speak, the company of lamenters. Number one, the Psalms. Okay, the Psalms, middle of the Bible, 150 chapters uh, uh, or 150 songs um, or how it's arranged now. Get this, there's, there's uh, tons of different types of psalms. There's, there's psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving. And get this, the biggest genre of songs that are in the psalms is lament. 
over a third are lament. Over a third of them are lament. That's crazy. I mean, think of this. So, so here's how the Psalms went down whenever they were written, is that people would come together corporately. I mean, imagine that at, at, at the light. You guys would come together corporately and lament. It's pretty crazy. And that's what he calls us for. Not lament only, but the problem is, is how artificial does our praise become if he's not big enough to hear our laments? How quickly do we retreat in just to a, a, a closet of darkness whenever we can't vocalize our laments corporately? And that's what the Psalms teach us. Um, I, I'm going to, if you're taking notes, um, again, there's over a third of them that are, that are lament, but here's some of them. Psalm 12, Psalm 41, 42, 43, 44, Psalm 60. Psalm 71, Psalm 77, Psalm 86, Psalm 88, Psalm 137. There's a lot more. You can look those up later. Number two, so we, we've got, we're with the Psalms before I get to number two. Here's, here's one thing I want us to see. On the cross, Jesus died with the Psalms on his lips. He died with the Psalms on his lips. I mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. That's Psalm 22. I mean, that's an unbelievable. Could, could you imagine you saying that to God now? I mean, think of it. It's profound. The Son of God going, God, you've forsaken me. In fact, in the first century, here's, here's the, the wild thing. I, I talked a little bit about this um, last year sometime was that I had this huge crisis of faith whenever my dad died and my crisis of faith wasn't as much with Jesus and God as much as it was with the church and just so you know your answer to your crisis of faith with the church is not to give up but it's to press in more okay so that's a side note that's a rabbit trail but just just take that for what it is um but but here's what what went off in me is that so many people were constantly going you know let's praise Let's just praise his life. Let's just praise his life. And I'm like, are you nuts? Like, that's what I thought. Of my, I'm, I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong, but I was just, are, are you nuts? My dad's dead. You think I want to microwave this deal so that I sit here and all of a sudden I'm like doing a backflip over his casket or something? And we don't have to do that. So in the first century, here's what a funeral procession looked like. It's pretty crazy because it's so different right now. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was read first, and then we got to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We normally only do Psalm 23 now, right? Why? Because we have to convince ourselves of positive thinking, right? Instead of convincing ourselves about relationship. Instead of convincing ourselves, maybe God is even sitting there weeping with us. Maybe then our praise will be actually truly true. So Jesus dies, and he's, or, or, or right before he dies, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what was God's answer? We know he didn't forsake him. Why? Because another psalm comes on his mouth. Into your hands I commit my spirit. 
right? So you have some people, theologically, they believe that whenever Jesus was upon the cross, that he, when he was dying, all of a sudden the Father turned his back, right? Have you ever heard that? The Father turned his back because he couldn't be in the presence of sin. But here's the deal. God's everywhere all the time. He's always in the presence of sin. It's crazy that we're not dead from it right now, for sure. But here's, here's the thing. The answer to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was not, I have forsaken you. After all, if Jesus was forsaken on the cross, think of this. At his most desperate time, the son of God who lived a perfect life, if at his most desperate time, God the Father gave up on him, why wouldn't he give up on you? But he didn't. What was his answer? Resurrection. It was, it was resurrection. It was, I haven't given up on you. I haven't given up on you. I'm not going to give up on you. I will never leave you or forsake you, Jesus. Maybe the father's response was in the midst of seeing his son, because I guarantee I've got two boys. I guarantee you this. If I ever saw my son go through that type of pain, I would heaving weep. Maybe that was the response of Jesus. Maybe it didn't need to be, or that was the response of the father. Maybe it didn't need to be verbal articulation. Maybe he just cried. Maybe he cries with you in the midst of your darkness. But we do know this, that the response was, God, you're good, so into your hands I commit my spirit. You see that? He's able to do both. Because I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he sat there and persevered through it at the time when nobody else would have persevered, he was able to say, into your hands I commit my spirit. Number two, scriptural basis. We have an entire book on lament. It's called Lamentations. Five poems. They're all lament. Matthew, I'm not, I'm not going to go into it right now, but you can write this down. Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Jesus himself laments over Jerusalem. It's a crazy picture because he, he sits there, he's lamenting, he's weeping over Jerusalem, and he says, how I would have gathered you in like a, like a mother gathers in her chicks. Notice his disposition with that. That's how, that's how gently I would have gathered you in. That's what I would have done. But instead, you want to stiff arm me. So he weeps. The last one, and again, there's a lot of them, but Ron said I only have three hours to preach, so that's all I can do right now. Um, and it's, um, go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 6, and, and I want to touch on this because I think it's important how, how we see the sacredness of tears, how we see the sacredness of lament. And it's this idea that, as one of my friends put it also, he said, Eric Clapton had it wrong. There are tears in heaven. There are. There are tears in present heaven right now. So when I say this, though, don't hear purgatory. Okay, don't, don't hear that. I'm not saying that there's only tears in heaven. There's a whole lot of praising going on in heaven. Also, there's a lot of rejoicing in heaven, but there's also tears. That's what the Revelation says. L look, Revelation chapter 6, 
Starting in verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And, and so picture this, and again, the, the revelation is wildly, it's literally symbolic. That's how it's supposed to be interpreted. It's not like um, God has like taken the martyrs and thrown them underneath an altar so they're just kind of hanging out there, okay? That's not what he's talking about. But the people that were the most faithful that we could even think of, they're willing to die for their faith. They die for their faith. And listen to what they say. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Get that present heaven right now. We have to get the, the, the timeline down. The tears are wiped away in Revelation 21 when Jesus comes back a second time. They're not wiped away yet. Why is this important? Because heaven is not ultimate. In Christianity, heaven is not, the, the present heaven is not ultimate. That's what the end of the Revelation teaches. The new heavens and the new earth are ultimate. That's what's ultimate. And he's coming in, and it's this idea of renewal. When he comes the second time, and there's the new heavens and the new earth, you've got to echo back to Genesis 2 on this, right? Because all in Genesis 1, he creates and he says what? It's good, right? He creates, it's good. It's, it's why, like, what we did this last weekend was an incredibly holy thing to do because God creates all of this stuff, and he says it's good, it's good, it's good. And he never took that declaration off his creation. And you get to Genesis 2 and it says, and this, this good stuff here, this is the new, or this is the heavens and the earth. So Revelation 21, the new heavens, the new earth, is the redemption of this earth, yes, the one that you're standing on, and the heavens, the heavens in that translation, or, or what it means is the cosmos. It's, it's everything that's not the earth, right? Everything that's not the earth. So when the present heaven comes in with excuse me, with Jesus, what happens is that he renews this earth and the entire cosmos to make them all brand new. So why is that ultimate? Or why is that important? Because in the present heaven right now, there's a sacredness in these tears. How do I know that? Keep reading. The response of Jesus, of their lament, because that's what they did, they were lamenting there, in front, and it was different because they're, they're seeing him face to face and they're lamenting. They're like, How, when are you going to avenge? You hear the widow's words in there? When, when are you going to avenge this wrong? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Their lament was met with affirmation. It's the white robe. It's a pure thought. It was a great thought. Why? Because it had not been avenged yet. Why? Because it should be avenged. But why? Because vengeance is not ours in Scots. We don't have to. We don't have to give vengeance on anyone. Notice that. These people, that the most precious thing to them, their life that was taken from them, they're living in such forgiveness in the present heaven right now that they say, this one's on you, God, not me. I don't need to take vengeance on someone that's wronged me. You just take care of it. You take care of it. And he says what? 
Here's an affirmation. By the way, go rest a while longer. That's what I'm saying. It's not just tears up in heaven. There is laughter up in heaven. There is rejoicing up in heaven. But what's ultimate is this earth, right, that you're on being fully renewed and the heavens being fully renewed. And when that happens, then every tear is wiped away. That's Revelation 21.5. So that's our scriptural basis. And again, there's a lot more. But what are some reasons maybe that we don't lament? Number one, we don't believe that God is actually with us in pain or that he truly feels our pain. I think that's one of the reasons we don't lament. It's almost like he's this distant, distant God that he doesn't feel anything. He doesn't enter into my pain, really. And here's the crazy thing. I said this last year was that the God of the Bible is a God of mercy, right? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. But here's the, the great picture of mercy in the scriptures. It's the incarnation. It's when Jesus comes from heaven to earth. Because here's what mercy means. It means entering into someone's pain and offering healing from the inside out. That's what mercy means. It's not just covering. It's entering into someone's pain. That's what he does in the incarnation. He enters into the pain of the world and offers healing from the inside out. And so as he does, as he's a God that does that, we have to realize this. He's a God that not only feels pain, but he can feel our pain. How do, I, how do we know that, though? Acts chapter 9. The conversion of the apostle Paul from Saul, right? So he's going on this road, and um, he, he was a guy that killed a messload of Christians, hated Christians and all these things. And Jesus comes to meet him. We know that it's Jesus later on in the story. You could read it um, in, in Acts 9. But, but w the, the crazy thing is what Jesus said to him. He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? And, and, and here was one thing that I was, I honestly had a problem with Jesus whenever he had said this. That's a confession. I'm not saying it's the greatest thing. But I, I just thought he was a bit egotistical on it. I was like, what about the people that got killed? And you care about yourself here? But here's why he can say that. It's because he felt the pain of those people that experienced that death even, even more than they did in their death. He felt their pain. And he's saying, why, Saul, are you persecuting me? I'm feeling this. You don't want to do this. These people, I love them so much that I preceded them in their pain. So hear that today. If you walk in here in a mess load of pain, God has preceded you in your pain and in your darkness, and he's sitting there saying, I'm going to give you resurrection. But he feels that deeper than we ever could. He felt it deeper than Saul ever could dish out. It's a crazy thought. But I think that we don't lament most of the time because we think that God's just kind of up there, you know, hope you work through that one all right. Let's get going. Here's your four steps to carry that deal out. Why don't you pull up your bootstraps? Get going. Right? I mean, that's normally what's taught in many churches too. We got to get really practical about this, right? There isn't something that's too practical about tears. There's not. In fact, most people will do anything to not feel pain. It's what our, our society revolves around. And yet, he tells us 
that he gives us the power of resurrection so much that we can enter into other people's pain. Why? Precisely because we're not dominated by it and we know that he heals. It's a huge deal. So then number two, why do we not lament? Honestly, I think it's, it, it's risky. It's risky. You see, what if, what if God might not be who we think he is? You ever thought of that? Like, what if I have this view of God that's not actually who he is? I'm not talking about that he's a, a God of a different religion or anything like that. I'm saying, what if he isn't who I've made him to be? And honestly, here can be one of the greatest things. That might be the biggest breakthrough that you can realize this morning. He isn't who you think he is. He's just greater. He's just greater. So in this idea of the, this riskiness of lament, we also have to realize this. It can be scary to change. It can be scary. I mean, have you, have you ever been around folks that like, the, the first thing you ask them, who, tell me about yourself. And they want to tell you about every single thing that they do and want to be identified by. Well, I do this professionally, I do this, I do this, I'm this person, I'm this, I'm this, I've struggled with this, I'm a this, 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 and this, and this. And those are all good things to finally get to, but that's not who you are. And especially if you're in Christ. If, you, if you're sitting here in Christ, you are a son or a daughter in him. You are a friend in him. And it can be crazy, it can be hard, it can be difficult to change this mentality. It's difficult. I mean, we, we need to face that. It's not, again, like I'm going to sit there and give you, here, here's your five-step process, go carry it out, hope you get it down by Thursday, let's get back here on Sunday, and, and Ron's got to, good to go from there. That's not relationship. And in the riskiness, here's, here's one thing I want us to be really honest about. What if he's silent? What if you complain and he's silent? That's what happened to the widow. There's a silence from the judge. Silence. Silence. And here's my fear is that we've mainly interpreted silence as absence. We've mainly interpreted silence as absence. What if it's just a different expression of his presence? Imagine that. What if his silence is just a different expression of his presence? What if he's sitting there saying, you don't need my words now, you need me to weep over you. You don't need my words now, what if you just need me to hold you? His silence is not just to egg you on. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's buck up. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of Jesus. And so, in the midst of your complaints that find your trust in him, he might be silent for a really, really, really long time. And know this, it's just a different expression of his presence. Finally, why are some reasons we should lament? Number one, lament is about relationship. You're not going to lament to somebody that you're not in relationship with, really. 
In fact, it's, it's a huge trust. Here's what one guy, uh, Ellington, said. He said, a, re, um, a relationship of trust, intimacy, and love is a necessary precondition for genuine lament. Basically, what he's talking about is the only way that we can really lament. The reason why God calls us to lament to him is because he really is a God about relationship. That's why. Number two. Lament is hopeful. Thus, the title of the sermon, right? Lament is hopeful, but how is it hopeful? It's hopeful because of this. The reason why you're complaining to God is because deep down in who you are, you really believe he's good. That's why. If you knew he was evil, if you knew he was terrible, if you knew he was awful, it would just be what it is. You wouldn't complain to him. You're saying, you're not acting according to your character, I don't think here. And what's your character? Good, faithful, honest, loving. And this doesn't look good, faithful, honest, or loving over here. So really, it's lament is this deep-seated belief in the goodness of God. So maybe the way that you cultivate goodness even more is by lamenting and letting him appropriate healing back to you. Number three. Lament is an act of faith. And this is what I said I wanted to talk about finally. At the very beginning. The pleading of the widow in Luke 18. She pleads and she's like, give me justice for my adversary. And then he goes on further. Notice that um, Jesus goes on further and he says, or whenever the son of man comes a second time, will he find that kind of faith? That's encouraging. Because most of the time we think that our issues, our problems, our laments are enemies to the faith. Maybe I just don't have enough faith. What if it's an expression of faith? What if it's an expression of faith? And it is. It's expression of relationship. So, so, so take that and widen your view in this sense of going, man, maybe I'm sitting here and there is something wrong and I need to lament this to God. And yes, will there be praise? And tonight there might be sorrow. Will joy come in the morning? Hopefully, but maybe that morning is going to be 30 years from now. Let's be honest. And maybe not. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's today. But it's about relationship. And finally, lament is temporary. It's why we should lament. It's temporary. <laughs> Revelation 21.5. There will be one day when he wipes away all tears. You get that? There will be one day he wipes away all tears. And it's when he comes a second time. And when he does that, it's going to be an unbelievably glorious occasion because he's going to wipe away the tears of people that are still here on earth and the tears of people that are coming down with him from heaven. And he's going to wipe them away. It's going to be no more and there's not going to be any more suffering, any more pain. All things will be made new. But get this, here's the reality. Wiping away tears predicates that there were tears in the first place, right? There was actual pain. It's just that pain isn't ultimate. He is. So that's my prayer today. That you would see the hope in lament. That you would see the power of who he is. That you would see his intimacy in such a way that you could go, I can, I can entrust these complaints to him. And God, I'm not going anywhere. And why? Who am I in heaven but you? And who on earth do I desire beside you? 
My flesh and my heart might fail, but God, you're my strength. You're my rock. You, I can do this with. And I think he answers with a divine hug. So Papa, I come to you this morning and I I just beg you that you would that you'd speak to us with the hope of lament, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear for the kingdom, that you would set people free here today, that you would break chains, that you would cause us to live a life of gritty, gritty faith that glorifies you, participates in your kingdom. Jesus, it's by your powerful, powerful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.